Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. I'm sitting here with Professor Stephen Fine. He's the director at the Center for Israel Studies at Yeshiva University. He's authored Jewish Religious Architecture from Biblical Israel to Modern Judaism. Professor Fine, thanks so much for sitting down with us. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you. Um, so I want to get to uh, one of the chapters uh, that you co-authored in this book is Herod's Temple, an Ornament to the Empire. Um, this is really fascinating. Uh, and so just wondering if you can give our listeners um, a little taste of the significance of Herod's Temple and um, why it was so difficult um, to create a model of this based on uh, what we could find in both literature and uh, in excavations. Sure. You know, the Temple of Herod was um, called by one Roman author a jewel to the empire and for by another the most important building in the East. And so we're dealing with uh, a building that Romans looked at with the same uh, awe that Jews looked at it when they say, whoever's never seen Herod's building has never seen a uh, beautiful building all of his life. And so it was quite a monument, the largest uh, temple compound um, in the entire Roman world. The problem with it is that it doesn't exist anymore. We have the temenos, we have the platform, uh, and that's this very large area surrounded on the western side by uh, what's now the Western Wall. Um, and then, of course, there's walls on the northern and the southern and the eastern side, but the Western Wall has continued uh, religious significance. We know a lot about it. We know a lot about it uh, because the Jewish historian of the first century, Flavius Josephus, wrote a lot. We know a lot about it because Roman authors mention it. We know a lot about it because the ancient rabbis have quite a bit to say about it. And we know a lot because... Uh, the platform on which it stood still exists, and the area around that platform has been excavated. What don't we know? The top of the mountain where the temple actually stood is the site of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and so there's no excavation up there. So we don't know what's on the mountain, and we probably will never know what's underneath those buildings. And so we're dealing with a major, major piece of architecture of the first century, of which we know a lot from literary sources, we know a lot from archaeological material, but we don't know enough to really reconstruct it, to visualize it without parallels from throughout the Roman world. And so I teamed up with my uh, friend and uh, co-author, Peter Schertz, who is a classical archaeologist, and we, together with my skills in, um, in the text and the history of art and those sorts of things, and his in archaeology and the history of art, together we know more or less everything you can know about this building. And so it required the two of us to use our imaginations to fill in the spaces. And what was unique about this article, I think, was that we forthrightly said, we can't do this. Now let's try. 
And I think this is a really introduction to uh, one of the themes that runs through your book, which is that um, so much of Jewish architecture, um, specifically temples, um, are ephemeral. They are built and they are destroyed over time and then rebuilt. Um, can you tell us, you know, why is that a running theme through here? And then uh, why was Herod's temple destroyed when um, even uh, Flavius uh, Josephus writes himself that it is uh, this great architectural jewel. And uh, the Romans seem to have uh, really revered it themselves. Look, our book is the history of Jewish architecture, which goes from um, the tabernacle in the desert, as described in the book of Exodus, all the way till yesterday. Um, there are very few themes in Western culture that you can stretch over all of the history of Western culture. Uh, this is one of them. After all, the tabernacle is central to Western thought uh, going through the 18th century into the present, though, of course, you can't see it. It's, it's written about the Temple of Solomon, the same, the Temple of Herod, the same. And the book then continues through synagogues, which in the 19th and 20th century, some communities began to call temples in memory of that temple in Jerusalem, um, and then on to the present. Now, why was it destroyed? Because of serious culture clash between uh, Judean culture and the imperial Roman culture as Rome set itself up in the East. Most principally, that notion that uh, God's chosen people uh, not might should not be ruled by a form for, by a foreign power in the first century. And what are the implications of a pagan culture taking over? Now they were used to pagan cultures taking over since the time of the Persians and the um, and the Greeks since the time of Alexander the Great. But what they weren't used to was the level of cultural domination that was taking place in the first and second first century BCE and the first century of the common era that was was startling. Now, why was it and what happened with that? Well, there are some groups that became uh, closer and amalgamated themselves to the empire. There were other groups that Romanized even in their um, in their apocalyptic disdain for the empire and lots of other people in between. Now, those people are called uh, the Dead Sea Scroll people at one extreme, at the extreme extreme, um, and the Sadducees at the other, with Pharisees and the believers in a uh, prophet from the Galilee named Jesus in the middle. And so we have this place that was a cauldron of, of interaction and of stress. When Herod started to build his temple in 2019 BCE, rebuilding the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile of 586 BCE, when Herod began to rebuild a temple that was rather modest, um, Josephus tells us that the um, local hierarchy made sure that he collected the money and the priests who were going to do the building and were all trained before he ever was allowed to start. Herod was building a monument to what he saw as his balance as a Rome-supported king to the Jewish population, his balance between Rome and Jerusalem. In his personal life, you could go to his palace and see that he lived more or less like a Roman. You can go all over the Mediterranean world and see temples and streases and even column bases, excuse me, statue bases 
that have uh, that used to hold statues and their faces say right on them, this was given by Herod the Great. He was the master builder, as were his uh, descendants, who went among the Jews, built for the Jews, went among the uh, polytheists, built for the polytheists, and tried to maintain that very precarious balance between Rome and Jerusalem, the temple being the epitome, the focal point, and the crown for that balance. That's why all of this effort into reconstruction. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, <laughs> you you talk about that balance, and um, that's what's so interesting about Herod. Um, and you mentioned specifically with this temple, um, he used the Roman architectural form. Uh, you talk about you know how elaborate this temple was, um, but then conformity to Jewish values of anti-idolism. Um, so he didn't put any statues in this temple, um, or or you write that it lacks. Um, sculpture. So, you know, what does that reflect about his way of ruling and his legacy? Well, if you went to his his polytheistic temples, whether uh, in the Golan Heights or in uh, outside of contemporary Nablus or in Caesarea or any place else, you'll you would likely find lots of images of deities uh, throughout in the standard Roman way. Um, since the time of the Maccabees in the second century, those people of the Hanukkah story. Judea had been a place where uh, Greek visual imagery wasn't welcome, meaning visual imagery that could be construed, seen, imagined as uh, religious, not visual imagery that was average, you know, birds, sometimes even people, um, plants, rocks, geometry, all sorts of stuff is possible and was brought in. But they created this environment that I once called uh, in the middle of the Gulf War an idle-free zone on the basis of, uh, of, of military terminology. They'd spread Judea and they made sure that imagery that they didn't like wasn't readily central to the culture. Um, this continued and became a standard of what Jews did. But I point out that to the north in Samaria, the Samaritans, the other Israelite nation, uh, had the same rule and were much stricter. And across the Dead Sea and in the south, the Nabataeans also avoided this kind of imagery. So it was a regional take that was specific to Jews and Samaritans for religious scruples that was violated by the coming of uh, Hellenistic and Roman culture into this region. And so there was a force within the culture that, that would use Roman coins, even in the temple, would use all sorts of basic pieces of the empire, but within the public sphere wouldn't allow uh, images of mythology, images of divinities, uh, that sort of stuff. In fact, when this process began uh, to become ideological in the second century, at the end of the second century BC, uh, the story developed that Abraham, what he left from uh, from Ur, not just because he found God, but in finding God, his father, still the story goes, was an idol maker. He was a priest, and the clash that ultimately set him on his way to the promised land was 
the breaking of his father's idols. In other words, this became so central that having the imagery of alternate religious communities within their sphere just wasn't acceptable. Does that mean that Jews have a problem with art? No. Does that mean that Judaism has this second temple phobia against making images? No. And our book shows that as well. What it does mean is that it is a restricted vocabulary, uh, that it tends not to do sculpture, but rather painting and other forms, that it um, is what I'd like to call anti-idolic, which is a word I sort of made up, as opposed to an iconic. It doesn't dislike images, it dislikes certain kinds of images. So is this similar to in Islam, uh, we see that as well, where uh, there are no depictions of uh, the the prophets the way that you might see in Christianity? Um, is that because this is all rooted in, as you mentioned, the, the story of Abraham, like in the very earliest um, roots of Judaism? Um, there was just a big book that came out about exactly this subject called uh, the image debate. Uh, and I wrote the Jewish chapter there. Look, Islam is not as um, imageless as, as some parts of Islam would like you to believe. Uh, in some countries, there's all sorts of imagery. Uh, in Persia, they used to make images of the prophet. This has to do a lot with the modernization of the Islamic world and the creation of a modern Islamic ideology, religion, belief system, though it's all rooted in traditional Islam, of course. Now, Judaism similarly um, develops, changes, evolves over time in, in regard to, to exactly these kinds of questions. Uh, Islam is drawing on um, Jewish proclivities, for sure. Christianity, in most of its uh, history, has not. It's taken a very different path for Christians, at least for um, for Mediterranean Christians in the ancient world, um, the icon can be the image of the divinity or an important person like the Virgin Mary. And by looking at, at that icon, which is like the icon before, which is like the icon before, which is like the icon before, if you look through your icon straight through all those other icons that stand before it, you can come to the image and to the, your relationship with the Virgin Mary or with whomever else it, that, you're, that you're trying to communicate with. For, for Jews, the text serves that function. So every Torah scroll looks more or less like every other Torah scroll throughout history, going back to the revelation of Moses at Sinai. And so where Christians developed a, a visual icon, Jews group developed a textual icon, um, Samaritans developed the same, same textual icon, so did Muslims. They developed a textual icon. The letter itself becomes a pathway to the holy. Hannah, how does that emphasis on the text affect the way all of these um, temples and synagogues are actually structured over the years? It seems like they're actually physically surrounding the text or physically surrounding the Torah, or we see the evolution of that over the centuries. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, I wrote a book once, my dissertation, on the development of exactly that notion, where I argued that the text is the holy object that's used by the holy people in what became the holy place. 
And then how do you create the, um, the stage upon which the liturgy is important to that community, the life cycle events important to that community take place? And that's what makes Jewish architecture Jewish architecture. It's not about style. It's not about form most of the time. It's about taking that centrality of certain fixed features, the most important one being the place where the Torah ark is kept or where the Torah is kept in the ark. In other words, wherever uh, this community has lived over a very long time, um, its forms have been the forms of the general culture um, I like to say often that Jews are the same as everyone else. If they live in the Islamic world, they do what Muslims do. And if they live in the Christian world, they do what Christians do. But that statement has a stipulation, which is until they're different. And it's the nuancing that allows a small community to distinguish itself, which from the outside may seem trivial, but the inside can be central to the identity and to the way it builds its uh, environment and its identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, in this chapter uh, that you write, Synagogues in the Greco-Roman World, uh, you talk about um, that sort of that balance, uh, but also that conflict uh, between uh, Jews living in the Greco-Roman world. Um, you write about uh, how the Greeks attached uh, communal life in Alexandria by, uh, once again, you know, placing statues um, inside the prayer places. Um, something else that I found interesting is that uh, in one of these synagogues, it's the uh, synagogue at Beth Alpha, um, you have a picture of it in the book. It's this beautiful Byzantine period mosaic. Um, and in the center panel of the mosaic is a zodiac, uh, Helios, which is the personification of the sun. Um, and so can you talk about why Jewish people continued using images of the zodiac after Christians abandoned it? And um, what does this have to do with Jewish construction um, of the time? Well, the most interesting thing is that it continued. Jews used them in the 5th century, the 6th century, and then it shows up again in the Middle Ages, and then it shows up again in modern times. The zodiac wheel, the 12 symbols of the zodiac, became a really important um, decorative feature, both in uh, architectural context and in um in the Middle Ages, uh, in illustrated books. So the question is, what are they seeing when they see this image? When you look at the floor at Beit Alpha or, or its cousins all over the Galilee and other regions in Israel, you'll see um, that the twelve regions of the the twelve signs of the zodiac are each labeled in Hebrew, and each of the seasons in the corners is also labeled. Um, but Mr. Helios isn't labeled. Mr. Sun God on his chariot. In any of these floors. Not only that, in some of the floors, he's not even in the chariot, but there's rather a sun disk uh, in his place. Um, what's going on with this? I'll tell you what I think happened. Jews borrowed the zodiac motif for their floors from the general Roman culture. Um, as Christianity strengthened in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, uh, the Zodiac became a forbidden image for Christians. Why? Because the heavens are now populated with the saints, not with these 
pagan symbols, okay? As a place that's, that's populated with the saints, the proper image might be the starry, starry night, as you see in one of the tombs in, in Ravenna in Italy, with a huge cross in the center and the heavens as you look up. But for Jews, it was different. The signs of the zodiac um, mark the 12 months of the lunar year. And the Jewish year is a lunar year. And so for Jews, when they look up in the sky and see the zodiac signs or can see a full moon or a, a partial moon or a moon that isn't even there, uh, even my little kids can look up and see, oh, it's the beginning of the month. Oh, it's the end of the month from a big moon in New York City where it's hardly possible to see anything in the sky because of the light pollution. Now, going back to the sixth century when there was no light pollution, um, the heavens were really, really close. And these folks had deep beliefs about what were up there. Uh, as the song says, God is watching us from a distance, but the distance isn't so far when the stars are looking in at you and you believe that the planets are the eyes of God flickering through the heavens. And so the zodiac signs had real presence and lots of people believed that if you knew when something happened and what the calculation of the zodiac was, you could actually understand something better about a world where they didn't have telescopes and they didn't have penicillin. Uh, these days with, uh, with corona, we understand things that we can't understand or that we can't control a little bit better than we might have a month and a half ago. Um, these people couldn't control the universe. Their control of the universe was by interpreting the phenomena around them but more than that, they believed that up there was God on his throne and surrounding him were zillions of angels. And in their prayer, they would say that uh, amazing phrase from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, raise up their feet as if they were raising to heaven and think that the angels are reaching down to them. And so what we're looking at is what one scholar called the dome of heaven projected into this space. Now, did they think that this was idolatrous? Well, some people were clearly uncomfortable with Mr. Helios in the middle of the floor, as I said before. But in general, no. In fact, they wrote sacred poetry, Putim, um, around the theme of the Zodiac. And you can almost imagine people in these synagogues listening to a, a, a liturgical poem that goes from month to month and talks about, for example, each of the Zodiac signs of the 12 months crying at the destruction of the temple on the day that it was destroyed in the month of August, the 9th of Av, um, you can see these people living in a space that's between heaven and earth. Now, let's not overstate that. They borrowed this imagery from a Roman context. I don't think it's particularly uh, mystical, as some people would like to have it. I think that it fits with their general worldview, which is not our worldview, which doesn't seems odd at times, like everybody dead's worldview seems dead, seems weird to us at some point or another, because they lived, didn't live in our world. Um, but in the sixth century, this seems to have made sense to borrow this imagery, and long after the Christians abandoned it, to keep it which is an interesting thing. Now, what did they see when they saw Mr. Helios? I've got to tell you, every time a new discovery is made, uh, you can almost imagine what the scholars are going to say. 
there are those who are going to say that whatever image it is, is going to be deeply related, related to Hellenistic Jewish mystery religions. There's somebody else who's going to say that it's deeply related to the writings of the ancient rabbis. There's someone else who's going to say that it's deeply related to the, uh, to the art of the whatever world. There's somebody else who's going to say that it is uh, a very specific image, and there are those who are going to say it's a generalizing image. Now, the fact that we come up with so many interpretations almost of every element tells you the truth, which is that we don't know, which is okay mm-hmm. to not know. But I'll tell you, my own take is that we are dealing with uh, imagery that can serve a lot of functions within a liturgical space that was part of a religious consensus that a mystic would look at and see the mystical, and a non-mystic might see uh, the months and how to live the months and might look at the month of Nisan, which is in the spring, and say, oh, it's almost Passover time, and look at the month of Tishrei, which is in the fall, and say, oh, look, it's almost the Jewish New Year. And all of those things together, sometimes in the same person, in the same mix at the same time, give you a series of windows through a prism or through a crystal of different ways that these people uh, might have looked at a floor. But there's one more piece to remember about these floors, and that is a floor is a floor is a floor is a floor, to paraphrase. It is not an icon on a wall. It is not an illustrated prayer book. It is something to walk on, something for children to play on, something to put furniture on. And while we may focus on these floors, it's probably because we don't have any walls and we don't have any ceilings and we don't have any lamps and we don't have any wall paintings and we don't have an art and we don't have human beings. When we add all of those features, the floor is part of a larger liturgical space. Really interesting. Uh, Professor Fine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, Professor Fine's book is Jewish Religious Architecture from Biblical Israel to Modern Judaism. Thank you, folks. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.